You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, this Friday afternoon. Happy International Women's Day for you guys on Sunday. And we've got a big topic uh, for you on the Agenda Cafe this afternoon. And I'd love to welcome back to the studio our wonderful co-host, Karen Ko. Karen, how are you doing? I'm great, Noreen. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we've got a big topic today. Yes. So as you just mentioned, this Sunday is International Women's Day. And the theme for um, IWD this year is each for equal. So I went on the IWD website and basically they say an equal world is an enabled world and individually we're all responsible for our own thoughts and actions all day every day. We can actively choose to challenge stereotypes, fight bias, broaden perceptions, improve situations and celebrate women's achievements. And collectively, each one of us can help create a gender equal world. So the idea of this year's theme is from this notion of collective individualism, that as individuals, we can do all these things. And when we come together, it makes it more powerful. Um, and that can really have an impact on our, our larger society. So that's what we're talking about today. And we are delighted to be joined by Pooja Kapai. Pooja is an amazing woman. I, I can't read her whole CV, but I'll just tell you a little bit about her. She's Associate Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and she serves as the convener of the Women's Studies Research Center there, and also chairs Hong Kong U's Equal Opportunity Committee, Committee's Working Group on Gender Identity, Sexual orientation and race. And Pooja recently conducted some research which resulted in a report called Doing Equality Consciously, Understanding Unconscious Bias and Its Role and Implications in the Achievement of Equality in Hong Kong and Asia. So pretty big piece of research. So Pooja, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Noreen and Karen, for having me. It's really a pleasure and very exciting to be here for the seminal podcast. Yeah, so our theme, as we mentioned, for International Women's Day this year is each for equal. So what do you make of that theme? I mean, what does it really mean? So as the International Women's Day's um, sort of thematic website explains, it's this idea that um, there are various um, aspects which have been worked on over the course of history. And in recent years, we've had, you know, different sort of themes like Pledge for Parity, which was about developing inclusive mindsets and then being bold for change by identifying specific things um, that one can do and pressing for progress in 2018 and then balance for better, which was last year, uh, you know, and, and the idea this year is how do we engage everybody, the collective, and make women's equality a project that um, everyone is interested in because they see why they have a role to play and how they have a role to play. Um, and on the theme of collective individualism, it's this idea that we can't change the world alone. We can't even change it in sort of um, smaller groups. It really requires everyone to be invested in this. Um, and so silence, as far as I see it, is no longer sort of an option. It takes everyone everywhere and all of the time to call out stereotypes, to bust biases, and to step in and say, we don't do this here. That's a big ask of, of the world, basically. And when you look at the sort of data that's been thrown around, so the World Economic Forum in 2017 said that the global gender gap will not close for ooh, 170 years. And unfortunately, this is a number that's been getting bigger. It hasn't actually been getting smaller over time. So. What do you what are your thoughts on that trend and how how can these these two things intersect and, and have us do something about it? 
So it's really a, a phenomenal challenge. And as you've said, we've been at this for centuries and we see that we have about a century to go before we even get close to where we need to be in terms of gender parity. Part of the problem, I think, is in terms of how the discourse is shaped, um, whether we like it or not. Money speaks and power speaks. And that is why we see even organizations like the UN and the World Economic Forum, for example, um, uh, frame these conversations in terms of what it means for the economy and what it means for sort of, you know, global progress. Um, and I think that that's a very narrow worldview to take because it assumes that everybody is um, is dependent on sort of the profit-oriented um, rationalization for certain actions. But we are not machines. We are rational human beings most of the time, but we're also compassionate and we are passionate and we believe in doing the right thing. So I think what's lacking is sort of a moral and ethical sort of driver on, you know, in this conversation, which is why it still seems to only attract sort of the top um, you know, elite in these mm. conversations, whereas the majority of the people who are most affected by these issues are feeling left out of the conversation because they want to be respected for who they are, not because they represent an extra dollar in terms of a company, uh, a company or an economy's progress. Right. So I think, you know, that's really what's held us back. We're looking at it in the wrong way because we're just trying to monetize everything. And whilst that's one way in which you can get the powerful leaders of the world to listen, it shouldn't be the only compass that governs how we choose to behave and act. And I think um, it's very important to bring that to the table, as idealistic as it might sound and as annoying as it might be for some people. The question is, if you're a great leader, then you should be standing up for what's right, even where that does not necessarily result um, in the maximization of profits. But where do we start? I mean, because these inequality-based gender, on, on gender is so pervasive in, across all the industries, and because there's not a lot of diversity up top to begin with. So these are the decisions make, decision makers. So where should we start? And it's across all the industries as well, in academia, in media, um, in, in cooking, you know, in <laughs> sports. sports. Um, where it's, do a we... it's a man's world, as they say. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Where where should we start? Well, as an educator, I would say you have to start right at the beginning of early childhood education. And I think that it's very sort of um, uh, pertinent that I'm here today to talk about unconscious bias research because numerous studies show that um, children acquire biases and their sort of worldviews at an extremely early age, as early as two or three-year-old. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned the word. What, tell us about unconscious bias. What exactly is it? So unconscious bias is basically the, uh, the way in which we um, derive sort of our perceptions um, or um, calculations about people and their behavior, which is based on our presuppositions about their characteristics. And these are often negative judgments. Um, and we obtain these through our socialization. So in terms of how we're educated, how we're brought up, the kind of communities we live in, but also the social and geopolitical environments in which we sort of fi find ourselves. And these unconscious biases go on to inform our views, our actions um, in a range of contexts. Um, Daniel Kahneman has written um, an amazing um, well, several amazing works, but one of the ones that strike me most as relevant here is he talks about how um, our biases actually are a, a, a 
uh, a, a result of our neurological functioning in our brain. So we basically, um, unconscious bias is a very natural part of the process of thinking for human beings. We have two systems in play, system one and system two. And it's all about organizing the vast amount of information that we're exposed to every mm -hmm. single day. And so system one is your really quick and snappy judgment forming system. And it works on the basis of, you know, um, taking cues from its exposure to a range of resources and information all the time. And it starts categorizing all of this in your brain subconsciously, unconsciously. Um, and then when you need to make a judgment or you need to make a decision, you just sort of draw on that quick information and say, aha, this is what I think of this person or this is what I think is going on here. So this is what I'm going to do. Then the system two process actually is one which requires more reflective deliberation, rational thinking, and, you know, sort of saying, oh, I think I was a bit hasty in making that judgment. Let me go back and really think what's going on here, right? So he says that we've got this corrective process that is also inbuilt, and it all comes down to the time that we have to make these decisions, the pressure that we're under in order to deliver, and other sort of considerations. So the problem is that our system one um, functioning is what we rely on the most, right? Every single day because we lack time. Um, but the problem is that is also the one that needs to be tweaked the most because we don't have as much time to work on it. And that's where education comes into play. If we prime the system well, then it will deliver um, decisions, even though they're snap, they will still be good decisions because we're basing it on solid information. It's more rationalized. Exactly, mm. because the input has been rationalized early on and we're careful in terms of what we expose ourselves to. So there's a counterbalancing always of stereotypes and other ideas that we get, oh, you know, because we're just conditioned to sort of constantly um, check our biases. But if we don't get that kind of education, if we always sort of um, have been presented things in a one-sided way, then gradually over time, our system stops to serve us in the way that it's supposed to. So efficiency um, compromises. The need for efficiency compromises the need for sort of um, good decision-making right. or solid sort of you know, decision-making. Um, and that's why unconscious bias training has become such a thing, that we have to work to correct these biases. But wouldn't it be great if we worked on it early oh, on yeah. enough so that there would be less correction uh, that would be required. So it seems like the, you'd have to start actually with the, with the family. I mean, because um, children are picking up cues from their parents about everything all the time. You know, you make a, a small comment or the types of media that you yourself watch, which inevitably your children watch or the conversations you have as adults. Um, is there much awareness that this exists at the moment in society? I mean, since it's unconscious, are we aware of what we're doing? Well, yes and no, right? So we know that in the US and in the UK, there's been a fair degree of research, scientific research that has been done to um, examine whether there is an unconscious bias problem and what are the sectors that are affected by it and who are the sort of foremost targets of unconscious bias, right? Is it gender? Is it race? Is it other things? Um, and so, you know, that um, research is available to us. But in Asia, the discourse seems to be, oh, well, you know, bias is a, is a Western problem. We don't have, you know, uh, unconscious bias um, really? in Asia. That has been part People... of the narrative here that it's, well, at least in terms of Hong Kong, I've heard there's no evidence that this is a race-based problem. Mm. I mean, I know in the work that I've done with education, for example, for the first sort of 10, 15 years, that's all I heard. Hong Kong is a diverse society where, you know, we're such an open community, we're the world city, you know, we're a cosmopolitan, international, you know, everything. 
Um, but yet you constantly find that ethnic minority children are not performing. I was going to say, it depends what race you are. Well, anyway. exactly. So I, I would find myself at great pains to say, well, it depends on, you know, your experiences and your resources. And from where I'm looking at things, no, you know, it's not sort of everybody has an equal opportunity. There's a systemic issue. Um, and that's when I produced my status of ethnic minorities report, which showed that ethnic minorities are underperforming across the board, whether it's education, employment, income, poverty, household, um, own ownership or health issues, right? Mm. And so, I mean, race is one clear um, explicator, right, of why some of these things are happening. Um, so there's this denial, which is not just sort of Hong Kong based, but I think across Asia, because there is this, I, I think Asia is much more um, diverse, right, as a broad sort of continent, if you yeah. can call it that. And so there are several dangers to sort of creating these sort of divisions and people see race as one of those um, areas which can ferment distrust or sort of exacerbate it very quickly. And so I think leaders generally try to, you know, shy away from sort of talking about race. And that's one of the motivations behind the research to sort of put it on the table mm. and say, let's look at our baseline, right? We have no research on unconscious bias in Hong Kong. Let's see if it's a problem here. And then, of course, there's this reality that even though something's a problem somewhere else, it won't necessarily manifest in the same way in Hong Kong, right? So this is about looking at where or sort of what, are, what is the level of unconscious bias in Hong Kong? What are the sectors in which it's most prevalent? Um, what are the age groups or what are the, you know, is there a gender differential in terms of people who are biased or not? And then who are the primary targets of unconscious bias in Hong Kong? So it's really to try to give very specific um, sort of guidance to policymakers and corporate leaders um, and educators, right, in terms of where you should be looking to identify your problem and then decide what am I going to do about it? Let's talk about your research then, Buja. So what were some of your key findings? So the key findings, well, maybe I just um, I'll give you a, a quick overview of um, the the way in which the study was done, and then I'll jump to the findings. Right. So basically, we had three groups of um, people that we um, recruited for the study. The first was high school students, the second being university students, and then the third being um, corporate employees. And um, it was a pilot study, so the sample size is small, um, but this was just a taster to see if we, you know, we've got anything to go on. And what we did was we, um, so that gives us the so social groupings, right, to see if the context made any difference. And that also gave us a nice sort of spread of age. Um, and we tried to have sort of gender balance groups, but that didn't work out very well. We had a female heavy sort of sample, I'll just say that at the outset. Mm. Um, and what we did was we took the Harvard implicit, implicit association test. So it's an online test, a lot of people take it, and then it gives you sort of a score, and that score tells you how biased you are and what are the areas in which you're biased in. Because they've got various permutations of the test. You can test your implicit bias on um, in terms of um, people who are sexual minorities or specific ethnic groups, gender, whatever, what have you. And so what we did was we created this paper version and we wanted to test for bias in four areas. Um, how biased are people in terms of gender and career? So whether women should or should not pursue certain careers uh, or career at all. And then gender sciences, so women and STEM. And then we looked at the race component, which looked at 
um, Chinese attitudes towards South Asians. And I don't know why, but we did decide to do this, and I'm really glad uh, we looked at um, Hong Kongers' attitudes towards mainlanders. Oh. So we're looking at whether there's a racial sort of interplay there, even though, of course, under the RDO, the Race Discrimination Ordinance, um, mainlanders is not considered to be a racial category. Right. So we, we had two groups that we split each of the subgroups into, right? So university students had two groups, which was the control group, and the intervention group. So the control group guys, what we did was we gave them the IAT, and then a week later, we gave them the IAT again. And then we just tried to compare if there was any difference over the one week period. Um, and then we gave them a questionnaire just to sort of help give us context for some of their answers. For the intervention group, we gave them the IAT, and then a week later, we trained them and then gave them the IAT again. So like the unconscious bias training. Exactly. Right. So the intervention was to train them uh, in terms of what are the forms of unconscious bias, what does the research elsewhere show, and um, how can you correct your unconscious biases, right? Um, and, um, and then they would also do the questionnaire to give us the context. So that was sort of um, what we had. In terms of findings, um, across the board, so before anyone had any training, it was very clear that everybody harbors biases. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, which is what we expected to find, because if we don't have unconscious biases and our brains are not working the way they're supposed to. Um, and so um, everybody had biases across the four sort of categories. But what was interesting was that the um, area where people are least biased. So this is relative. Right. They're least biased in terms of um, gender career. And then they're most biased in terms of the attitudes of Chinese people towards South Asians. Wow. Right. It's interesting. And then the middle two become people have some sort of degree of bias towards um, women in sciences. And of course, people have biases uh, in terms of Hong Kongers towards mainlanders. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the second question was whether there's a gender differential. And so across the board, we found that there was no um, sort of significant finding of gender differential in terms of um, attitudes of bias. So it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't make you more or less biased in any of the fields that we were looking at, except we found that men were far more biased uh, in terms of Hong Kongers' attitudes towards mainlanders than any of the other groups. Wow, really? that's interesting. That's really yes. interesting. Um, and this was true for the intervention group as well. Okay, so that was really significant. Um, and of course, even after intervention, even after, after, the, training, after, after the, the training. So I think that's sort of a really important tell point because um, it's not just whether unconscious bias training um, can help mitigate biases. It's a question of what type of training can help mitigate what types of biases. Effectively. Exactly. Mm, yeah. And so the findings also showed, and I think that's down to what kind of training I delivered, um, it showed that whilst we were effective in um, helping mitigate gender biases, both in terms of science and career, we were not as effective in mitigating racial biases. Um, and that, I think, spoke volumes about two things. One, racial bias is much more entrenched than gender bias, mm. right? And so it's harder to get at. But the second thing is that it could be um, a verdict on that particular training that was 
designed and delivered to that group of people. And what that tells me is the training did not do an effective job in addressing Hong Kong mainlander bias. And, and I think the reason is because when we hypothesized, I didn't expect there to be this distinct um, category where Hong Kong mainlander attitudes were so sort of um, uh, at such a tension point that right. it would demonstrate this difference. Because when I've studied race, I've often sort of looked at it as a more um, global phenomenon, looking at sort of South Asians uh, and, and communities yes. and how, you know, which groups tend to discriminate against them. Uh, of course, it's very clear that there has been mainlander bias in Hong Kong growing over the decades um, since the handover. Yeah. But I hadn't expected it to manifest in such a concrete form so as to show a significant finding. Mm. So we, it's like one of those things we can we can tell anecdotally is out there, but you've actually been able to measure it. Yes, and significantly, this study was conducted immediately preceding the onset of well, the tabling of the anti-extradition bill. Mm. Right, so it sort of foreshadows. I mean, people have been surprised why there's such a sentiment and how, um, I mean, how insightful and hateful it has been. Yes. Um, but, you know, here you have these predictors where all the telltale signs were present, which tell you that there's a very distinct, deep-rooted bias, and it's not going anywhere. And we have a lot of work to do on it. And I think that the, the last year has really exacerbated these and made mm. them even further entrenched. Yeah, Professor mm. Gordon Matthews uh, from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, he studies uh, a lot of uh, ethnic minorities in, in Hong Kong, Southeast Asian groups. And he also did a study, he released it, I think, last fall as well. And he also said, uh, you know, Southeast uh, South Asians and um, blacks are no longer the ethnic other mainland um are the other uh, yeah ch ch uh, chinese mainlanders are now the new ethnic others so that's very interesting absolutely mm, and yeah. gordon matthews has done a lot of work prior anyway on um, ethnic minorities and so it's really interesting that you know he's tried to sort of also capture sort of this moment because i think it's extremely significant where you start to otherize um a group um, in, in you're no longer us, exactly. you're them. Exactly. Yeah. And so you're actually seeing this process in formation. And there's a historical dimension as well that I think um, beckons us to ask what um, makes people sort of form these biases. So in the US, for example, it's come, you know, as a historical artifact because of the history um, Migration of Migration. Exactly. And, and the, slavery, yeah. but also the Asian model minority, mm -hmm. um, and then the myths around that and affirmative action. And so in Hong Kong, I think there are similar tensions that have been brewing since 1997 and even earlier in relation to the position of um, mainlanders from China and what um, kind of a threat. So it's often threat or fear induced sort of um, stereotype formation. Um, and we see all of that suddenly sort of materializing well or exploding, you could say, um, right now. Uh, and I think it's extremely dangerous because it gives people um, the permission to suspend um, rational thinking, rational yes. thinking, but also and behavior, yeah, right? compassion. compassion. Yeah. And I think that is is very heartbreaking because Hong Kong, as a society, has always had this element of being really generous, um, and you know, uh, when it counts, it's managed to sort of gather together and rally people together. And we've seen threads of that as well in the current movement, right? Mm -hmm. For as much as there's been division, there've also been moments of solidarity. But they've, you know, but again, every time you have that, then su suddenly something happens and you see this display of um, very extreme forms of hatred. Yeah. Um, so I think that unconscious bias research um, forces us 
to confront the extent of the problem and to really um, home in on the specific areas that need work. And that's where it becomes informative across sectors because it means that schools have their work cut out for them. Um, universities certainly have their work cut out for them. And, and it's not an option to sort of um, not address these issues. The challenge is how you address them because what the research shows is that if you don't address them properly, in the second round of the IAT, we found some groups actually regressed. So the control groups that I mentioned that got no training, all of them had their bias levels worsened across the board for gender science, gender career, um, Hong Kong South, uh, Hong Kong South Asian, Chinese South mm -hmm. Asian, and then Hong Kong mainlanders. And so if people are talking about unconscious bias, and that's it, that's even worse than not talking, not talking about, about unconscious about bias no. at all. So, you know, again, it, it, it forces us to think carefully about how we design programs. And it tells us that unconscious bias training is not a tick box exercise. It doesn't work that way. So you can no longer say, oh, we've done that, mm -hmm. right? We have to um, have proper sort of curricula and then we have to run these, but we also have to do pre-tests and post-tests to see, well, what difference did that make? And then how much worse did something get? And then how do we address that? So it's got to be programmatic. And we obviously, nowhere around the world, do we see anything of that um, sort of nature and scale. Um, and, and so I think government has a great deal to do because in school, I mean, in other societies, we've seen that it, um, it impacts law enforcement, right? So for example, in the US, police have been found to use harsher sort of restraint methods for people of color yeah. in terms of arrest procedures. Yeah. Um, in schools, we've seen teachers um, hand out harsher punishments for children of color. Um, and of course, everybody's aware of the um, the CVs related research yes. that white sounding names yes. are 50 percent more likely to receive callbacks for interviews relative to non-white sounding yeah. names. Or even male and female, John and Jennifer. Exactly. Yeah, With exactly yeah. the same credentials. So it really makes you wonder, right, if you've got this sort of um, hiring uh, committee and you've got your indicators, what possibly, what could possibly explain this, you know, vast difference in terms of how you conduct recruitment where you've got exactly identical credentials? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, kudos to some of the, I think, um, corporate sort of institutions that are moving forward and trying to do difference blind forms of hiring. Uh, you know, of course, it's extremely challenging. It's much more time consuming. It's resource intensive. It's labor intensive. But I think the reality is that if we um, genuinely um, are committed to um, pushing for change, right, and if we're really thinking about it in the mindset of each for equal, it comes down to each individual in the hiring committee to push back and say, look at this, you've got two identical candidates. And here we are, we had four positions and they've all gone to males or they've all gone to white males, right? And the question is, who is able to, um, who's able to strike these kinds of interventions in the context of a boardroom? And I think to your point, Noreen, right at the outset, it's about who's sitting at that table in the first place. And that's why we have to go back to the very beginning so that we can not only prime people to um, develop better system ones, but also uh, work on organizational structures and environmental conditions, societal conditions, so that everywhere you turn, there isn't this opportunity to get away because either your parents will tell you or your neighbors will tell you or your school will tell you or your friends will tell you. And I think the challenge at the moment is nobody's telling anyone 
much of anything. Right. And so the people who are vying for change, you're really putting themselves out there, are still a relative minority, yeah. right? And so I think each free equal is an attempt to create a wave similar to Me Too, where you know, sort of turning your back against sort of this voice is no longer an option because it's going to be uh, a conviction of some sort, right? You're you're going to be marked out for being the one who's got sort of the gender problem or being um, unconscious about the way in which you participate in this patriarchal structure that continues um, sort of um, the predicaments of women's sort of um, inequality. I think corporates listening out there right now will need to get Puja into their corporate right now and start doing the training and start talking about it. And and we'll continue this very uh, interesting discussion uh, after the news. Uh, Do join us. You can also email your thoughts in uh, 123show at rthk.hk. HK. Welcome back. You're listening to the Agenda Cafe this Friday afternoon. And we are talking about, um, well, we're, we're talking because of International Women's Day, which is coming up on Sunday. And we're focusing on uh, the theme Each for Equal and looking at the role of unconscious bias and how it can stand in the way of equality. And we're joined by Pooja Kapai, who's Associate Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong. And she's also the convener of the Women's Studies Research Center there. So Pooja, we talked about a lot of things before the break uh, about your your research mm-hmm. and the, some of the findings. So when you look at all this in aggregate, we have a couple of issues here. The fact that how do you change this when, as we've talked about, the people who are the decision makers are are maybe not the the people who should be making these kinds of decisions. Say it's a it's a committee full of men or it's a board full of men or it's a just a board full of people who have the have these biases and are not aware of them. So where do you start? So I think that it comes down to something that a lot of um um, spheres in society don't generally welcome, and that is sort of requiring positive intervention to ensure that the right bodies and people are at the table, right? So that's why there has always been this push for gender parity or um, diversity in numerous spheres. And I mean, speaking from sort of my legal sort of background, I'd say, for example, gen- um, gender... That's male-dominated. Right. Mm. But we've seen um, across the board the difference it makes to have female judges on a sort of a bench, right? Um, especially if they're making decisions as a group. And it also makes a difference to have a diverse bench. So it's not just about being a woman, but being a woman of you know a, ver- um, a different background or men of a different background. All people bring sort of their life experiences to sort of the boardroom or you know the bench um, or in decision-making settings. And um, you know, so many people have articulated why that's important. And I think the studies findings also reflect why this is important because the findings showed that your your exposure to particular social networks and life experiences. So we looked at um, in the questionnaire, we looked at um, people's upbringing, whether they were raised by men or women, primarily as a primary caretaker. We looked at, you know, um, gender role stereotypes at home and the attitudes towards career and gender, etc. And so we found that um, social network has um an impact on your bias levels. For example, if you have a strong network with South Asians, it can reduce bias in terms of gender science and gender career. Whereas your networks with mainlanders seems detrimental 
in terms of bias reduction to gender career, so a more traditional mindset there. It was also found that strong working relationships with Caucasians reinforce racial biases against South Asians. So we not only have to think about sort of um, training individuals, but we also have to think about who individuals are making decisions with every day, because that is going to influence what you think is a good or a bad decision. So, I mean, it's a lot of what we know about peer pressure mm -hmm. and, you know, people don't like to admit it, but there are informal processes at play in hiring, in admission processes in universities and across the board, even in judicial decision making. For example, it was found that um, sentencing uh, towards people of color tended to be harsher. longer, harsher, as opposed to those who were white. Right. And prosecutors made decisions about what charges to bring forward against people of color. Um, that, so the charges were m more trumped up than they would be if it was a person who was white. So clearly, I think, you know, we need to ensure that our decision making spheres are as diverse as the sort of um, range of opportunities we want to make available to people out there. How do we do that? I think that, you know, people have spoken a lot about the business case for diversity and, and all of that. But somehow that's not compelling enough because, as I said, racial biases are extremely entrenched. And even the training reflects that it's very hard to um, uproot. And that's where I, I want to go back to why we need to institutionalize unconscious bias training right at the outset, very, very early, so that our boys and girls are growing up not thinking about stereotypical ways of being, right? So girls should be as likely to say, I want to be a firewoman. Mm -hmm. Or an astronaut. or Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the question is, we, I mean, that's why the report is called Doing Equality Consciously. It's almost calling for an engineered approach to designing every facet of our community, not you know in the sort of AI sense, but at least in the sense that we have to take a more proactive approach to be very careful. And so where there's exposure to one type of sort of um, social network, there have to be um, opportunities created to allow for other spaces for you know, these individuals to sort of um, participate in. And that's why school and school-based segregation is such an important issue, right? We grew up going to particular schools and that impacts our worldviews and what other people think about us. And, you know, other research has shown that merely having sort of exposure to news that gives you an alternative perspective can sort of address your biases and sort of help you rethink what you thought was accurate information. And in this age of disinformation, we know that we need to do this um, in a more conscious manner. And unfortunately, the way in which social media works and the way in which news cycles are designed, they're actually designed just like advertising to prime us to think what um, confirms our bias. Exactly. bias yeah. exactly, and that's called confirmation bias. Exactly. <laughs> and speaking of AI, even something as simple, I was typing person in kitchen clip art into Google. And it was all women. It was all women. Oh, there were no men in the kitchen. No men. And, and, and in an industry where a lot of chefs are actually men. Men. The majority of famous and successful chefs are men. Exactly. Um, Which also brings the, the, the next question, because the woman may not have been promoted 
based on gender because it's seen as women are, t- you know, too emotional. They can't handle the heat in the kitchen. I mean, sitting around here, three women, how many of you have been called bossy? Yes. As, <laughs> opposed, to, so. yeah, as opposed to using positive words like being assertive, you know, yeah. speaks their mind. Um, and we have to be very careful in how we speak to our children. And uh, yeah, But it's I, interesting how, when you think about, for example, the, the women's movement that came out in the 60s, so that that's already a long time ago now. Why is it that these stereotypes are so pervasive over generations, you know, over now three or four generations? I think that it comes down to sort of the structural aspects, which have been extremely slow to change, right? I mean, two key areas that remain um, the same as they were at the turn of the century, the lack of women in government positions and the gender pay gap, right? So equal pay for work of equal value. A century on, we're still fighting for those. And I think it comes down largely to the fact that decision makers who are male have not given over um, their power. They've found structures and ways to retain their powerful positions, especially if you look at um, academia and schools. I mean, the way in which schools train boys and girls across the board for particular professions, there's still a dearth of programs for female leaders. Um, as much as they are blossoming, they are burgeoning, but there's not nearly enough resources being poured into making women your next successful sort of leader to lead out on government um, uh, and corporate leaders, although, again, they're growing in numbers, but not nearly fast enough. And of course, in this part of the world, the change is even slower. So I think we have to recognize that it's not just what happens in the boardroom that is important. It's just as important that these changes happen in tandem um, because there's cultural communities, there's religion, um, there's all these spheres of influence that this language of parity hasn't been able to break through in. I mean, look at, you know, look at various religions. They all have um, sort of aspects which are deeply patriarchal and they remain in play no matter which religion you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And the same goes for culture. So, you know, here in Hong Kong or in Asia, we're more embedded in a Confucian culture. But even in the West, it's not like there is no culture. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's culture. And that's what we're seeing. Um, And so that's why, you know, I think that we still um, are steeped very deeply um, in this process where we're not necessarily making change at a fast pace. And I think to the point, Noreen, you made earlier that, you know, things are actually somehow worse, right? So, for example, in Hong Kong, the gender pay cap, uh, the gender, gender pay gap is 22% for women, which is worse than it was a decade ago. So we're mm. regressing in some spheres. And I think the problem is multifaceted, right? We need to keep, we need to have these um, sort of numbers out there and available transparently. We need to create opportunities to reflect on them periodically and often enough so that we can keep this on top of the agenda, right? Because um, these conversations tend to peak around International Women's Day and then recede into the background. And that's why, again, I think the theme for this year is so interesting and exciting. If everybody is able to articulate a way to make it happen, it's about being present to each for equal every day, all the time, everywhere. So whether it's at home, when you're watching your children do something, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's, you know, in, at the workplace. And the question is, how do you create that environment where people aren't afraid of being penalized or silenced? Um, and so what kind of collective um, effort or energy can help um, women or people of diverse backgrounds um, be be able to sort of take that risk. Um, And so 
yes, I think Me Too has foreshadowed how, you know, you can have a movement built from the ground up. But I think we can't ignore sort of the importance of having at least one convert at the top, yes, right? Who some can, leadership. Right, who can help sort of um, give carriage to these bold sort of individuals who are willing to be a part of this sort of wave. Um, and so it's, I think, maybe having a benchmark of um, identifying sort of um, leaders for with potential for development and then grooming them, right, to step into these um, sort of spaces. Because I think, you know, the challenge is, it's not that there aren't opportunities. The challenge is that the competition is so stiff that it's far more likely for an able and talented um, female individual to be axed out of the process, right? She'll fall through midway, right? Um, it's the pipeline crisis, mm. right? And we have to identify ways in which you can support these individuals to hang on in these sort of very sort of precarious um, stages of life where they're, um, you know, might be sort of axed out. And, ha and how does that happen? It, it's about creating supportive networks, but also, um, you know, engaging sort of leadership all the time to highlight to them what they're losing um, by allowing these sort of gendered um, processes and structures to remain in play. And because the upper echelon is always exactly. a lot of male because yeah. women, you know, drop out in the middle to maybe have right. children. And sometimes it's very difficult for them to get back in or they're stalled because of the perceived bias that, oh, they might leave soon to look after more children. And therefore, they never fully they never get on that track. They yeah. never, or they never the they can't stay on the track. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in Hong Kong, we have all the research, right? So the EOC has commissioned this work recently on um, gender-based and sex discrimination um, in um, in various sort of um, sectors. And all of them through and through reflect that there is still pregnancy-related discrimination, yes. there's sexual harassment in, uh, across sectors. So if you put all of these things together, um, there is sort of a systemic um, society-wide problem that we have but the research is there but what's happening mm. with it nothing so right why is that what are people in hong kong not just not interested enough or they don't care enough or are they afraid to upset the the apple cart i i think it's the last right the, the, the reality is that the people who hold all the cards and all the keys um, are just unwilling to budge and the government simply hasn't made it uh, sort of I mean the law itself is pretty weak right the sex discrimination ordinance I mean it all um, depends on a conciliation first process yes. uh, and that in itself is really difficult for victims to sort of work through you, you don't suspend the person the victim still has to see the perpetrator exactly. on a daily basis exactly and imagine getting into the same room with them and if the perpetrator is your employer or someone in a senior position, boss, exactly, yes. you know, being in the same room as them, they've obviously got legal assistance um, who's coached them how to sort of um, present themselves in the narrative, whereas the victims show up completely unaided um, because the EOC has to take this neutral position, which, you know, I, I think it doesn't create um, confidence. Con exactly. Or, yeah. Right. And it um, it's not empowering at all. And in fact, it reinforces and there are aspects of secondary victimization um, being played out even when you're accessing the law. And so victims are unwilling to access the law. So if employers and leaders have this um, carte blanche, right, to get away with it, then why would they change um, their structures or, yeah. you know, they wouldn't give up their power. So we do need also stronger sort of um, laws and we also need those laws to be acted on right so there are um 
commissions with the mandate to take certain people to task. But we don't see a lot of that happening in Hong Kong either. So I think through and through, there's a systemic failure of those processes to really um, deliver on the objectives of the law. So when you have that, the the message is, it's okay, this is Hong Kong. This sort of stuff, you know, you get through it. It won't haunt you, right? Yeah. And I think that's why people are looking again to the Me Too movement in, you know, elsewhere to see, well, can this be a reckoning right. um, where it does haunt you all the time and that you don't get to come back and sort of, you know, um, play up your power and sort of participate again where everything's okay. Yeah. And we finally actually have someone convicted for all the sexual assaults, you know, yeah. in the US, which you think about how many years he yes. was able to, to get away with to get that. away with it. Well, not and, just how, and just people and sort of, people? yeah, and people sort of, you know, the, the, the standing by effect, people who are, you know, knew not, but didn't say anything and didn't take yeah. any action. I, I do, sorry, go sorry, on, Pidja. I was just going to say, I mean, this is, is sort of, it's a victory, but it's also something that um, should strike us as an anomaly, um, that these are the narratives of very sort of successful women that have been, you know, brought to the fore and that's taken off. But it does leave sort of this big question around what of the narratives of other thousands of women who are not in those positions of power, mm. who are not white, yes. um, who experience these kinds of situations almost on a daily basis. Um, and are often disbelieved, discredited, um, and, and have no sort of um, recourse whatsoever. Mm. And I think it, it sort of highlights this intersectional issue of whilst women, of course, tend to be um, the victims of the majority of um, forms of sexual harassment, um, women of color tend to have uh, a wider sort of range of exposure, but also a more exacerbated experience um, of these types of um, crimes or assaults against them. Yeah, that's it, the um, bystander effect. Yes, exactly. I do want to end the program on, on a couple of points, um, you know, and, and I raised this in the news break about uh, the double bind bias that women often suffer as well, that women are expected to behave in a certain way, that women are supposed to be uh, nurturing, likable, so that when they are eventually in positions of power and that they do become more assertive that people often think that you're not a good leader you're you're too mean and but men don't often have that similar bias um, and the second point I want to raise is also are women helping ourselves you know there's that uh, a phenomena of the queen bee syndrome and that when women are often um, uh, propelled into positions of power that they often don't support other women they don't support women subordinates and that they are harsher to them um, what are your thoughts on that point I think the double bind you speak of is you know is very real and it's also very serious it goes back to the problem of gender role stereotypes that we're all socialized into and I think until we don't change that until we don't change the notion that you know men can be sentimental and soft and women can be assertive uh, and good leaders um, you know we're not going to get away from the double bind and that requires um, putting in place role models who can be normalized and so I think um, you know, unconscious bias is impacted by the kind of language people use to describe the same situation. Yes. And so I think it requires us to rewrite scripts about powerful women and to rewrite uh, scripts about men who are doing things that isn't sort of considered to be masculine. Um, it starts also with education um, on masculinity and femininity and being much more inclusive and embracing this. And I think we've got a perfect opportunity with um, us learning that you know gender is not binary right so there's 
Agree. Ample sort of evidence and opportunity to start sort of very early um, so that people don't get um, trapped into these sort of um, boxes that are very hard to climb out of and then they come back to haunt you even if you want to be sort of the person who breaks out of the mold right. you're often more you know more often attacked and that's why we fail right so it's sort of like the glass um, the glass ceiling Ceiling, or the the cliff right that you fall off as a woman because people are rooting for you to fail right to mess it up somehow just waiting for to be able to say see i told you so so that requires also mentorship but also reverse mentorship so that's been a concept that's been discussed i think in some circles um that you can't have mentorship that's absent of knowledge and understanding of people's um contexts and circumstances you have to know how to mentor your mentee and mm-hmm. that comes down to what are the um, you know environmental factors that have conditioned their ability to be strong leaders what are the things that would hold them back and so again it goes back to that middle sort of level crisis period where what is the thing that's going to you know um, lead her to sort of letting go mm-hmm. um, or sort of dropping off the ladder altogether and how then do you offer support um, and how do you push, but without sort of um, putting on that pressure, sort of in the negative sense, to sort of be a man, you know, yeah. step up to it. Because, right. you know, that's, I mean, that's how contradictory all of our processes are. We design programs, but then we don't do our homework about histories um, and all of that. Um, in terms of sort of, um, what was the second aspect the you mentioned? The queen bee syndrome. Mm. That, you know, perhaps that women, you know, it's not just the men, women as well, because when women are propelled into these positions of power, they're not being as supportive as they could be. Absolutely. So again, the unconscious bias research um, that I've got, I mean, it demonstrates that gender bias is not a phenomenon that's restricted to men. Women harbor gender biases too. Um, And we reinforce these. And as you say, we take opportunities to take other women down. Um, So I think that there is some reality to the mean girls um, sort of phenomenon. But at the same time, I think there's also another reality which um, some women, um, you know, uh, speak to and um, emulate and that is that women's support groups can be some of the most powerful spaces for women to sort of rise and really sort of um, uh, epitomize and actualize their full potential right and so the question is how can we um, create sort of um, an environment in which women and girls don't feel the need to be mean girls where they instead see that it's equally it's beneficial to all women to be a part of a strong support network um and you know i mean i don't like to use sort of the example of you can unite against a common enemy the man (laughs) (laughs) because you know you would want to embrace within that group um men who might be societally um sort of referred to as effeminate right um but sort of you know creating um friendships that go beyond um, sort of uh, what can I get out of it and finding a way to sort of, I guess, be an upstander. Mm. And we need We need you men as well because there's no point just women sort of saying, oh, we need women's rights. We need allies. And, you know, part of it is... Is male allies, exactly. <laughs> but I that's, mean, you know, it goes back to something that, Karen, you mentioned earlier, right? Narratives are really, really compelling. And I think that... Um, the reality is, as far as, I mean, at least insofar as my advocacy work has gone, I think many people um, just haven't had the opportunity or perhaps um, a sufficient exposure to the kinds of ways in which different issues intersect to make certain, you know, women or men or people of color um, sort of stay static mm-hmm. in their positions, right? Entrenched in these sort of vulnerable um, positions. And so if there was a way to sort of use the arts or narrative storytelling 
to bring home this reality and highlight the complexity of it. It's not as simple as you didn't give me this opportunity because no. I'm a woman. It's far more complex than that. And if we could somehow sort of bring this to people's attention in a way that they could empathize more deeply, then I think we have we start to create the conditions where people can be more compassionate and understanding. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting with all the sexual sexual harassment um, news over the past few years. A lot of um, men say, "This happened to you 15 years ago. Why did you never talk about it?" And you know, if it has ever happened to you, you know why you never talk about it because it's too painful and you don't get listened to. But that those kinds of stories are the stories that, that men need to hear and understand as well. Right, because there's this expectation that if it was true, you would have said something immediately. So these are your typical sort of rape myths and all of these things that people have to confront. And I think that's also um, something that applies to the workplace. If you've um, suffered discrimination, so maybe not even sexual harassment, but people say if that really happened, you would have said something. But the answer is no, I wouldn't have because there's so much more to lose than to gain given how the processes work out, yeah. right? But there's also a danger, right? Narratives can be very powerful, but as we've seen, for example, with the Delhi gang rape um, situation where you, you, you know, have this overdrive of stories around um, these issues and also with the Me Too, you have kind of an oppression Olympics going on where people say, well, that's not as bad as what happened to that like person. Like trying to one-up each other. <laughs> exactly, or sort of asking victims to sort of lay out all of the details so and that- the backlash. Exactly, mm, yeah. so that you can persuade me that you're worthy of my, you know, sort of empathy, empathy and sympathy. Yeah. So we have to strike the right balance. And I mean, I, when I do sort of training on sexual harassment, this is the most important thing, right? When you're sending people to various um, um, structures in order to seek justice, the question to ask is, are those spaces safe for those women? Can they really share what happened without encountering judgment, um, you know, and the myths that go along with all of that? Um, can they come out of that process without being further broken and delegitimized? De uh, de and I don't think we're anywhere close when it comes to that. We still um, routinely see people being sort of flogged further um, when you have a story to share where people first think, well, what did you do to, to bring that on? Or maybe you could have done this or that and that. I mean, and that goes back to the let's fix the women narrative, yeah. right? So how do we sort of get at that space in between? And that's where, I mean, you know, I started off with, well, yes, the economic argument is great, but I think the moral and ethical are far more important. And this is where I think it, it shows you why it's important. You can't do compassion and empathy with numbers. It has no value. There's no currency in the moral and ethical sort of space. And that's why you have to have something to go back to as a human being, because that's what makes us human, this ability to sort of empathize and feel um, for somebody else because it's about their dignity, which we should be able to see as tied into our broader dignity as humanity as a whole. And so if we can um, find a way to integrate these moral and ethical aspects into the work that we do, no matter what that work might be, whether you're a top kitchen chef or whether you're a judge uh, or a high school teacher uh, or a leading corporate, uh, you know, that I think would be the most, um, those are the people that should be uh, celebrated. And that would be demonstrative of um, each free call really having an impact um, that people sort of say, that's leadership. So maybe we need to redefine leadership, right? Uh, not the guy who brings in the, the greatest numbers, but the person who can demonstrate that he's created this community that is safe in which everyone gets to thrive.
Yeah, well said, Pooja. Thank yes. you so much indeed for your time this afternoon. A lot of things for our listeners to think about. And, of course, if you're also interested, you can get in touch with Pooja. Pooja is the Associate uh, Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong, where she serves as the convener of the Women's Study Research Center and also chairs the University of Hong Kong's Equal Opportunities Commission's Working Group on Gender Identity, Sexual Orientation and Race. And we were also basing uh, this interview on her recent research, which is called Doing Equality Consciously, Understanding Unconscious Bias and Its Role and Implication in the Achievement of Equality in Hong Kong and Asia. Thank you very much indeed Thank for your you. time. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Pooja, and happy Karen. International Women's Day. To you both as well. Thank you.